she was given a choice. Give up Jesus or give up your child. Her name is Samita, and it sounds like an impossible choice for anybody. But for a believer like Samita in Central Asia, it was all too real. Three years earlier, she had been a Muslim. Uh, now, she was a follower of Jesus. She had joy again. She had freedom. She had confidence in her salvation and a love for God and a thankfulness to Jesus. But she also had an abusive marriage. And her husband, Rashid, beat her in an effort to force her to renounce her faith in Christ and return to Islam. He wasn't even a religious man. For him, it was more cultural than religious. To be Central Asian, he believed, was to be a Muslim. And, and even when Samita was in her fifth month of pregnancy, he was still beating her. After the baby came, he kicked her out of the house and gave her an ultimatum. Renounce Jesus, or I will divorce you, and in keeping with the law of that land, I will take your baby from you. Of course. Samita says, I told him I would never renounce Jesus. I can't imagine my life without Jesus anymore. So Samita fled with her month-old baby away from the countryside to the capital city. Her mother, who had also come to believe in Jesus, fled with her, as did her sister. And the four of them, baby included, moved into a single room in the city. And she can only hope that God will defend her. There are no other means to resist her husband. She says this, she says, I don't ask God to give me back my husband. I don't ask God to keep my family. Most of all, I need to be strong in my faith. I don't want to lose it, to lose my relationship with Jesus Christ. Can you imagine facing such a choice? And yet, throughout the ages, Christians have had to make impossible choices to follow Jesus in seemingly impossible situations. We're going to read the words of Jesus in the ninth chapter of Luke. We've been following along as Jesus teaches us about following him, taking up our cross, and he continues here in Luke 9. Uh, this is the 57th verse. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, that is to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Here Jesus issues his most basic instruction. He says, follow me. What does Jesus mean? when he tells us to follow him. First of all, Jesus, it means that, that following Jesus uh, 
means prioritizing your relationship with Jesus Christ over everything else in your life. Every other relationship, every other concern, every other priority, Jesus becomes the top one. As they were walking along the road, the man said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he was probably thinking in an academic way, you'd follow us a school uh, like like the school of, of Hillel or of Shimei, and he's going to follow the school of Jesus, and he's probably picked, you know, Matthew in his account, even he even calls him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, and, 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 and that meant to follow a school of thought, but, but to learn their interpretation of the law, a lot of transfer of information, it could be very academic, and Jesus had a whole different idea of what it meant to follow him. He's saying, you don't have the option of following me as a set of beliefs or a doctrinal system. You have to follow my person. I am not a systematic theology. I am a person and so much more than a person. Following Jesus means prioritizing him over everything else in every area of your life as your Lord. And that's going to have consequences if you really do that sincerely. Jesus is saying that following me means you're going to face the same homelessness in this life that I have had during my earthly ministry. Uh, you know, that's the point of his answer when he talks about foxes having holes, birds have nests. Every creature has a home except Jesus. When he walked into a town, uh, there was no guarantee that anyone would offer him hospitality and take him in. He was homeless. Uh, and, 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 and it was not always a positive place to be because opposition was continually growing against Jesus, particularly among the elite. And eventually, within three years, he had crowds of people yelling, crucify him. Jesus was rejected by the world. He was an outcast. He was on the margins. He was homeless. And Jesus wants this man to consider the cost of following him because if you follow Jesus, you will be homeless in this life. The world will not be your home. You will never quite fit in. It will never quite feel right. Because you belong to Jesus. And that means everything else is a little different. Everything else is a lower priority. Uh, Jesus is saying, as they reject me, so you too will face rejection in this life. You know, naming the name of Jesus may make some people dislike you. It may ruin some friendships. It may put awkward distance. It may... It may prevent you from having a promotion. People may feel threatened by you. They may view you as a danger. You know, to follow Jesus is more than sitting at his feet learning the Torah. It's a radical reorientation of our life. When Jesus comes crashing into your life, things don't stay the same. If one is to go wherever Jesus goes, then that means, you know, that means you're going to have to be ready to face some level of rejection. Um, as believers in this particular country, we have it relatively easy compared to many of, of our sisters and brothers in Jesus because here we've got a lot of Christians, relatively speaking. We've got First Amendment protections within our Constitution, but, but you look at the persecuted church worldwide. The fastest growing church in the world today is in Iran. There have been pastors executed there have been leaders imprisoned, homes broken into, worship services broken up, people put in prison, people taken in for questioning, people have lost jobs, they have lost families to follow Jesus, and it's the fastest growing church in the world. 
or look at the church in certain parts of India where Hindu nationalism has become dominant. Uh, Christians sometimes have to keep their head kind of low, and converts may face threats or violence from their families who feel that their family honor has been disgraced by abandoning the gods. To follow Jesus, you have to be willing to disappoint others, to face opposition, to be the whistleblower, to become social outcasts, to have no safe place in this fallen world, to be homeless like Jesus. And Jesus is saying, this is a commitment from which you can never look back. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. It's an illustration from farming. It's a, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's proverbial. It, it, when you would plow, you would have to, to in the rocky soil of, of, of Palestine, as you plowed, you would have to keep your, your eyes straight ahead to where you're going. And if you looked back, you could end up in a ditch, you could end up in a rock, you could end up off course uh, and, uh, and, and make a mess of it. You know, one hand guides the plow, the other goads the oxen, and the eyes are looking straight ahead. And uh, that means constant allegiance, constantly looking ahead to Jesus, not looking down at myself and at all of my sin, but looking up and out to Jesus as Lord, saying, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. This, this language of turning back has biblical history. Remember the, the Hebrew scriptures and the story of, of Lot and his wife as they were escaping from Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, his wife thought of all the luxury and wealth she had, and she turned back, and as she turned back, she turned to salt. Scripture warns us about turning away from Jesus. It speaks of those who turn back in 1 John chapter 2, saying they went out from us, but they were never really of us, because if they had been of us, they would never have left us. Uh, walking away from Jesus is the way to show that you never really were with Jesus, he's saying means prioritizing Jesus over everything else. And there is an intense sense of urgency in the words of Jesus as described here by Luke. Following Jesus means putting ahead of even family. And that's the challenging one. He, you know, this, this guy comes up, he says, Jesus says, follow me. He says, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And I have to say, if there is one really good excuse to delay following Jesus, you know, it's burying your dad. Uh, I mean, the Bible commands us to honor our father and mother. Uh, and, it's, and yet Jesus then talks about letting the dead bury the dead and instead go and preach the kingdom. It's that high of an urgency. And it's, it's possible that this wasn't as good of an excuse as it sounds because burying someone in, in Israel was a two-stage process in the first century. Um, they would die, and you would have to get them buried in a, in a rock cave uh, before sundown because it was expected that they would be buried before the sun sets. And you would set them on a ledge in a cave. You would roll a rock in front of the cave to close it off, and you would leave them there. The body would decompose over the next year, year and a half. And then after a year or two, you would go back, roll the stone away, go back, collect the bones, and put them in a stone box called an ossuary. And it's possible that this man is saying, my dad died last year, and so I can't follow you because I have to go collect his bones and put them in the ossuary sometime in the next year. And that's a pretty lame excuse. But it's also possible that his dad had just died that day, and he had serious matters to take care of. And yet Jesus 
is saying that very best possible excuse for not following Jesus, honoring your father. He's saying, that's not a good excuse. I am the source of life. Your father is not the source of life. I am. The urgency here in how he describes this. Um, in just a few more chapters, Jesus will say words we read earlier from Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and, and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Um, Jesus is certainly using a rhetorical overstatement. He doesn't really want you to hate your family. Um, I'm sure people have misused this text in the past. Uh, he wants you to honor your family. But when it comes to choosing between them and God, he is saying, you need to come to me because I am the source of life. I am the one who will raise you from the dead. Uh, I've watched how family pressure can can come upon a new believer, particularly if they're from a different religious background. Um, you know, Jesus is saying that can happen. Uh, I've watched people lose their families because they got Jesus. And, uh, and it's, 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 it still happens. Uh, it's that urgent of a situation, Jesus is saying, that you must come to me to gain life. Your family cannot give you eternal life. Only I can give you eternal life. Remember how God tested Abraham. When, when God told Abraham, take your son and, and sacrifice atop the mountain your son. Uh, and, and only that's not how God said it. Because if God had said it that way, you know, Abraham would have said, come on, Ishmael, we're going up the hill. You know, but he didn't. God said, take the son, your only son, the son you love. Meaning Isaac, the child of the promise. And, and we'll look at this passage in, in Advent when we do a study of, of the angel of the Lord. But the angel of the Lord, of course, rescued the child, um, prefiguring the ministry of, of Jesus. Um, but Jesus is saying, I have to be even more important than your family. There's urgency here. You know, Danker writes that many a would-be follower of Jesus has pleaded the requirements of social obligation or prior business demands as an excuse for not meeting the imperative of obedience. And Jesus rejects all these excuses. The kingdom of God is too urgent. Enter while you still can. I remember when I was just a kid uh, watching the whole buildup of the situation around Mount St. Helens. Uh, Mount St. Helens, a, a, a volcano in the Pacific Northwest, beautiful, uh, was a place for camping and all sorts of, you know, you know, fly fishing and whatever. It was just a beautiful wilderness area. And, uh, and there was an older man who lived up on top of, of the mountain, about two-thirds of the way up. And interviewers would go, media people, reporters would go, and he would always insist uh, in interviews that he was never going to leave the mountain. The mountain was fine. It had never been a problem. He had heard the mountain rumble his entire lifetime, and it had never blown up. There was nothing to worry about. And then the mountain blew up, and he was incinerated in less than half a second. And you thought, man... Why didn't you get the safety while you still could? Why didn't you get, why didn't you get to, to the place of salvation? And that's what Jesus is saying here. Don't put it off. Don't wait. 
There's urgency here also about getting this message out. He says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God with your, your very life, with your words, with all that we have to, to, to be putting on display the reality that Jesus saves sinners of whom I'm the worst. It means prioritizing them over everything else, and there is urgency here. So how is this possible? I want you to consider who it is that is placing this call upon your life. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus who defended a woman caught in adultery from her religious uh, opponents as they sought to stone her, the hypocrites who were going to stone the woman and not the man with whom she would have had to have been caught in order to have two or three witnesses. And he said, neither do I judge you. Go and sin no more. You know, the Jesus who radically included the poor and the weak and the brokenhearted, who felt such compassion for a widow who had lost her son that she raised her son from death to life. Jesus who teaches us to love our enemies the way he loved us when we were his enemies. This is Jesus who... who would go to the cross to bear all the guilt and shame of my sin and your sin and to pay that debt for us so that we would never have to pay it, so that we could go free. This is Jesus who clothes you with his own righteousness so that, so that it's as if you, you, you had, had won a great medal of honor and were receiving a ticker tape parade because you are, are righteous in God's eyes because Jesus has, has done this for you. This is Jesus who pours out his spirit upon you. Jesus who says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus who says to pray in my name and I will be there for you. Ask and you'll receive. This is Jesus who is love incarnate. He is the author of life and he's here with, with authority to call you as well as with the love because he says that he's the son of man. And that means he's the figure spoken of in Daniel chapter 7, the, the, the figure that was, was one like a son of man, but who was eternal and from ancient days and who could walk in the presence of Almighty God and who would rule the nations forever. His rule would never end and he would be worshipped. This is Jesus who has absolute authority to bring in the shalom of God, the universal flourishing, to make righteousness and justice and peace flourished and caused people to beat their swords into plowshares. Consider who it is who is calling you. This is Jesus. And consider where he's promising to take you when he says, follow me. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. My, 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 my father's house has many rooms, many mansions, many houses, many places. Something we practice every night when we give up consciousness and go to sleep trusting that we will wake up on the other side morning and we practice it day and night again and again giving up consciousness with the with a hope that on that last time we give up consciousness Jesus was telling the truth and he will bring us over to the other side and we will be alive again forever this is Jesus who who of whom Paul says that I has not seen nor, nor ear heard nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who follow Jesus. When you get there, friends, the first thing out of your mouth is going to be, oh my goodness. 
This is Jesus who is going to take us home. This is the Christian hope that a a day comes when death itself is destroyed, when death doesn't get the last word, when Jesus gets the last word, and his word is a word of life and of hope. There's a story about Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian writer who spent years in a Siberian gulag. At one point, he had become so discouraged, and he had decided to give up and die. And so he made a plan that he would go out in the field and he would lean down on his shovel and just quit working. And then those who did that, the guards would then bludgeon to death. And as he went out and knelt down with his shovel, another prisoner came over to him before the guards noticed. And as he was leaning down, he took his shovel and he carved into the ground a cross. And then very quickly... He covered it up before the guards could see it. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn later said that his entire being was energized by that small reminder of the hope and the courage and the life and the future that we have in Christ. He found the strength to continue living because a fellow believer cared enough to hold out hope by pointing him outward, outside of himself, to Jesus. If this were anyone else saying, Greg, I want you to follow me, I'd be asking a lot of questions. But this is Jesus. This is Jesus. Life itself calling, love incarnate calling, saying, come and follow me. In 1904, William Borden graduated from a Chicago high school. And as heir to the Borden family fortune, he was already a very wealthy young man. For his high school graduation present, his parents sent him on a a trip around the world. He visited Japan, China, India, Egypt, Syria, and Turkey. This is in 1904. And while in London, uh, before returning to the U.S., he began considering the possibility of giving away all of his money, his entire share of the Borden estate. And he felt a growing burden to give his life to help the poor and the needy of the world, representing the love and welcome of Jesus in lands where Jesus was not yet known. Finally, Bill Borden wrote home about his desire to serve Christ on the mission field. His father was not abused. One friend expressed disbelief that Bill was, quote, throwing himself away to serve Christ. In response, Borden took out his Bible and he grabbed pen and ink and he wrote down the date in the back of his Bible together with just two words, no reserve. He's giving it all away. Even though young Borden had been wealthy, he arrived on the campus of Yale University in 1905 trying to look just like one more freshman, but very quickly his classmates noticed something unusual about him, and it wasn't that he had money. One of them wrote, he, became, he came to college far ahead spiritually from any of us. He had already given his heart in, in full surrender to Christ. He had really done it. And we who were his classmates learned to lean on Bill and, and find in him a strength that was solid as a rock just because of his settled purpose and consecration to God. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started something that would transform campus life. One of his friends described how it began. He said, it was, it, it, it was well on in the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. I can't say positively whose suggestion it was, but it was probably Bill. We'd been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us, 
and soon after that, a fourth. The time was spent in prayer after a brief reading from the Bible. Bill would read to us from Scripture, show us something that God had promised, and then proceed to claim that promise with assurance that God would answer. Gordon's small prayer group soon spread across the campus. By the end of his first year, 150 Yale freshmen were meeting for weekly Bible study and prayer. And by the time he was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. Gordon's ministry wasn't confined to the Yale campus. He rescued drunks from the streets of New Haven. He founded the Yale Hope Mission to serve addicts and poor people. Uh, one of his friends wrote that he might often be found in the worst parts of the city at night on the street in a cheap lodging house or some restaurant to which he had taken a poor hungry fellow to feed him and to talk to him about the hope that he has in Christ. Gordon's sense of calling narrowed as he found his heart being filled specifically with a love for people who are Muslim. And upon graduation from Yale, Borden turned down some high-paying job offers, including one at his, at his father's company. His father was irate that his son would have such foolish priorities, and he told William that he would never again be allowed to work in his company, no matter how poor he ended up. There would be no coming back. Shortly after, William again took out his Bible and a pen and some ink, and in the back Below the earlier two words, he wrote down the date and added two more words, no retreat. After Yale, William Borden went on to do graduate work at Princeton Seminary in, in New Jersey. Uh, early in 1913, when he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed for Cairo to study Arabic and to familiarize himself with Muslim culture and religion so, he could, so that he wouldn't offend people uh, unintentionally. He learned very quickly to read and speak Arabic while in Egypt, and he was active with the YMCA there. But after less than two months, on March 21st, William Borden contracted spinal meningitis. Eighteen days later, on April 9th, 1913, William Borden died at the age of 25. Borden had given away all his millions. When the news of his death was cabled back to the U.S., the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. One biographer wrote that a wave of sorrow went around the world, for Borden not only gave away his wealth, he gave away himself in a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. And prior to his death, in those last days, dying of spinal meningitis, while lying in his bed, Borden had written two more words in his Bible with the date. When his mother received his Bible, she found that underneath the words, no reserve and no retreat, William Borden, before dying, had written the words, no regret. Let's pray.